Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, major blowback after Orsted's bombshell announcement shutting down two New Jersey wind projects. Questions remain on the future of wind development in the state. It's a clear setback for New Jersey's clean energy goals. It's a setback more broadly um, for the industry. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that we can't meet our goals. Also, a high stakes election. With the balance of power up for grabs, social issues are determining whether voters head to the polls or not. They can't take these things for granted and that they do have to go to the polls and show up and vote for those that they feel like are going to protect their rights. Plus, dangerous waters. An investigation reveals how much of the seafood that ends up on your dinner plate is being caught through China's rampant use of forced labor. It's pretty tough work. Malnutrition is a huge problem. They run out of fresh vegetables and eat pretty quickly, so you have a lot of guys dying from severe malnutrition. And unsafe living conditions. But we have to have accountability, and the Housing Authority Board has to require more accountability. Tenants crying foul, alleging unhealthy conditions at an Atlantic City housing complex. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. Funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. RWJ Barnabas Health, let's be healthy together. And Orsted, committed to the creation of a new long-term sustainable clean energy future for New Jersey. From NJPBS, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venosi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Thursday night. I'm Brianna Venosi. The blowback continues following the decision by Danish-based Orsted to walk away from both of its massive offshore wind projects. Slated to be built off New Jersey's coastline and providing clean energy within just a couple of years. The wind farm developer cited rising costs and a tough economy as the main reasons for pulling the plug. Republican lawmakers are now calling for hearings into Orsted's decision and whether the governor's office was aiming to keep the news quiet until after Election Day, a claim the Murphy administration denies. And while many insiders say the decision won't put a stop to New Jersey's emerging offshore wind industry, it's still unclear exactly what happens next. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports. Ultimately, it, it, it is a, a gut punch. Right. Doug O'Malley says Orsted's sudden decision to deep six its two wind farm projects off the South Jersey coast creates double trouble, economic and environmental. Key players already knew the industry faced headwinds like spiraling steel costs, supply chain issues and high interest rates. Some other states had already renegotiated imperiled wind farm contracts. I think there was an expectation for a pause, a delay, a restructuring. Um, or a reevaluation. But that being said, this was not the only project that was planned off the Jersey Shore. But it would have been the first to fire up by 2026 with enough juice to power a million homes. Instead, Orsted pulled the plug and took a $5.6 billion loss. What's next? Industry analyst Chris Olath insists offshore winds still got a strong future in New Jersey. I think for me, the message has been keep calm and carry on. 
Olaf says developer Atlantic Shores remains committed to its current project located 10 to 20 miles off the Jersey coastline and New Jersey's Board of Public Utilities just received four more bids for additional projects, including Attentive Energy 2. That company stated it aims to strengthen and expand upon New Jersey's foundational offshore wind investments while creating new pathways for a local workforce and supply chain. New Jersey is already moving swiftly forward with their solicitations. Four projects are in consideration right now, and we would expect a decision on that early next year. But I can't imagine we don't see higher prices in the short term. Watchdog Brian Lipman's raised red flags about how much offshore wind will cost ratepayers all along. He warns Orsted's pullout blew a 2200 megawatt hole in New Jersey's energy master plan objective to develop 7500 megawatts by 2030. Now we're catching up and the catch up megawatts are going to be expensive. And, you know, I think right now I'm hopeful that we're at the height of the market and that prices will begin to drop somewhat soon. To fight climate change, President Biden's targeted 30 by 30, 30 gigawatts of offshore wind energy by 2030. Projects dot the East Coast, the largest off Virginia just got federal approval. And Jersey's got serious skin in the wind turbine game with a new wind port and monopile construction facility in South Jersey. Unfortunately, Orsted's decision just iced a couple hundred union jobs there, at least for now. Again, it's 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 South Jersey, Salem County being sold a, a bag of goods. Assemblywoman Beth Ann McCarthy Patrick's definitely not a fan of wind farms. She backed a moratorium, but she welcomed the work opportunities to build and ship hundreds of steel monopiles. Jobs is a thing. We need we need jobs, and for I don't know, just for them to just oh, it just makes me so angry. Now what? Orsted could sell its two offshore leases and all the prep work, but it won't collect the billion dollars worth of tax incentives that Governor Murphy approved. The state also intends to wrangle back another $300 million in outstanding escrows and performance fees. It's a clear setback for New Jersey's clean energy goals. It's a setback more broadly um, for the industry. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that we can't meet our goals. But expect some delays. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. As Democrats do damage control over the Orsted decision and its impact on their environmental agenda, there's also concern it could hurt them at the polls next week. State GOP members are pounding the pavement ahead of the November 7th legislative election in an effort to gain control of at least one of the chambers in Trenton. But with local county and school board seats also up for grabs, there are plenty of other issues with the potential to sway voters. For some, especially left-leaning residents, civil liberties are on the ballot. As prominent national topics like reproductive and parental rights play out in clashes across the state, underscoring the fact that all levels of government can determine those civil freedoms. For more on that, I'm joined by social justice writer Taylor Jung. Taylor, thank you so much uh, for joining me. You reported that voters, particularly on the left, say they're making ballot decisions based on civil liberties. What in particular are these voters being galvanized by? 
Yeah, I think they're they're just seeing the direction of the Supreme Court over the last couple of years, not just with Roe v. Wade, but with other decisions where they're more conservative leaning and now people feel like their civil liberties are at risk. And that could be abortion rights, that could also be LGBTQIA rights, a whole host of different things. And I think people are realizing that you know, they can't take these things for granted and that they do have to go to the polls and show up and vote for those that they feel like are going to protect their rights. But if they're concerned about, say, the federal level or the Supreme Court, what does a local election, you know, their mayor or a school board have to do with that? I think people naturally know more about federal elections, maybe less so about um, the more local or state elections. And so sometimes they feel or also it does actually happen where those themes carry out through the more, again, less federal, more state and local elections. On the Republican side, for example, a lot of themes about uh, parental rights and, you know, b banning books in schools and things like that are things that are also echoed in talking points at the lower level as well. So these are influential, um, not just issues, but also positions when you're casting that ballot. I mean, these are folks who really have control over your quality of life. Exactly, and I think that's what I think more and more people are also realizing about the state and local level is that these are people that determine your day-to-day -day life and your rights. And in New Jersey, for example, um, there's the New Jersey Voting Rights Act, which can also protect the Federal Voting Rights Act that people feel like might be at risk at this moment. So New Jersey has also protected abortion rights, same-sex marriages. Um, so these are some ways that, you know, our leaders here in the state can also protect our civil liberties. You spoke to a couple of political analysts. Are the parties, you know, jumping on this and using this to their advantage? You would you would think, but they're actually not. So at least in the Democratic Party, uh, from what I heard from analysts and strategists, is just that they're not really speaking to voters, and that could be young voters or older voters. Older voters are more concerned about affordability, job stability, and we're seeing that you know with striking and work like place demonstrations. Younger voters are caring more about what's happening in Israel and Palestine, climate justice also a little bit of job stability and you're just not seeing Democratic candidates putting their neck out on the line to, you know, talk about more controversial topics because they don't really want to rock their voter base at this moment, which tends to be more conservative, older voters that they just rely on to keep them in office. So very quickly, is there an anticipation that this could potentially hurt them at the polls or backfire in a way? Not now, but people are looking towards next year's election, federal election with the president's race, as a way that could potentially um, rock the Democratic Party. Wow. All right, Taylor Jung Forrest. Taylor, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. For more on which candidate is running in your district and where you can vote, head to njspotlightnews.org and click on the NJ Decides 2023 tab for all your election needs. And make sure you join us right here next Tuesday, November 7th, for our live election night coverage, beginning with David Cruz at 8 p.m. And then I take over with a team of reporters and analysts starting at 9 p.m. New Jersey Congress members Mikey Sherrill and Bill Pascrell stopped short of calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, but they do support a humanitarian pause in the conflict to get more aid flowing into the besieged strip amid the Israeli bombing and to the civilians who need water, food, fuel and medicine. 
Calls for a humanitarian pause are escalating as Israeli airstrikes continue to devastate Gaza. According to Gaza's health ministry, more than 9,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces, including over 3,600 Palestinian children since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel that killed just over 1,400 people. Well, New Jersey's chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations held a press conference this week calling attention to the Garden State's ties to the war. Franklin Township Board of Education member Sami Shaban says nine of his family members were killed in their home in Gaza. Meanwhile, Jersey City Councilman Youssef Saleh said his family member was killed in the West Bank. While New Jerseyans are also believed to be among the hostages taken by Hamas, and an Israeli-American from the Garden State was killed in the Hamas attack. You can add Hunterdon County to the list of places the state is expanding the Arrive Together program. The initiative officially launched in the county on Wednesday, pairing a plainclothes police officer with a mental health expert as they respond to 911 calls involving a behavioral health emergency. The goal is to shift how law enforcement deal with those crises and prevent escalation. A pilot version of Arrive began in 2021 under the state attorney general's office, and its success resulted in the legislature approving $10 million in the state budget to expand the program to all 21 counties in New Jersey. Well, Hunterdon is now the 12th county to roll out Arrive and will use the Hunterdon Medical Center alongside local police departments and crisis intervention teams for responses and follow-up calls. A new investigation is revealing the crimes behind the seafood you eat and how much of the fish that ends up on your dinner plate got there by way of what are essentially floating slave ships. The investigation by the Outlaw Ocean Project exposes China's rampant use of forced labor within the global seafood industry and deeply rooted human rights violations. As China remains the leading supplier of seafood to the U.S. and Europe, including places in New Jersey, but many of their fishing vessels are dependent on workers who are forced into a debt bondage they can't escape. Journalist Ian Urbina has covered this issue for years. He and his team reported from both land and sea for this investigation to offer a first-hand account of the conditions on these ships and what's propelling slavery on fishing boats. He joins me now. Ian Urbina, um, wow, first of all, thank you for sharing this reporting with us. You write extensively about um, what you say are human rights abuses that are rampant aboard these vessels. Um, just how big of an issue is this in the maritime industry? You know, so distant water fishing vessels are those fishing vessels that are on the high seas. They stay at sea for a long time. Whether those are Chinese or South Korean or Taiwanese, um, these vessels have a big problem with human slavery and trafficking and violence on crew. It's a fairly global problem. I mean, and a lot of this, most of this is ending up on the dinner plates of Americans how many, we know that there are at least 10 importers in New Jersey that through your investigations linked to some of these ships that have these human rights concerns. How vast though throughout the United States, just how many consumers are getting these products uh, on their dinner table that as you write, are caught by slaves? Yeah, I mean, if you think of seafood, ponder it on the water, on the fishing vessels, but also in the processing plants. And we looked at China in particular. So there are two realms in which 
forced labor is happening. Most of the world's seafood goes through either from Chinese vessels or through Chinese processing plants, including hundreds of brands that come into the U.S. And in the factories and on the ships, a lot of forced labor is used. So we're dealing with you know several dozen major brands and grocery stores and restaurants that have seafood that's been processed by forced labor. Talk a little bit more, Ian, if you can, just about life aboard one of these ships if you are um, one of these really indentured workers. Yeah, we looked at Chinese squid ships in particular, which are especially brutal ones. These are jiggers. They're usually 40 men on a ship, uh, five officers. They stay at sea for about two years, uh, and they sort of traverse the entire globe. Work days tend to run 15 hours a day, six to seven days a week. Often they're working in the freezer, you know, for 10 hours straight, and they don't have gear. If they're up on deck, then they're dealing with really, really brutal cold and water coming aboard heavy equipment. So it's, it's pretty tough work. Malnutrition is a huge problem. They run out of fresh vegetables and meat pretty quickly. So you have a lot of guys dying from severe malnutrition. Do they ever attempt to leave uh, to get off of these ships? Are they able to? They do. You know, there's this case just recently about a month and a half ago where a bottle washed up on shore in Uruguay. And in the bottle, there was a message that said, SOS, I'm being helped against my will. Could someone please rescue me? And they named the ship. It was a Chinese squid jigger. You know, there have been mutinies and strikes in a bunch of places around the world on these ships. They turn violent. They often turn deadly. Sometimes the ships are run aground into the port so that the guys can try to get off. Um, So violence happens and escapes do happen as well. What's driving all of this, though? Because as you wrote and after your investigation, there's a whole economy here. There are essentially bounty hunters that go and look for these folks. If they do try to escape, they get paid. There are other uh, people who help with their transportation in searching for uh, any of these escapees, we'll say. They also get paid. I mean, there is a whole ecosystem of people involved in this. And I wonder what's driving the need for all of this, uh, you know, far sea fishing. Yeah, I mean, you know, seafood is the last form of wild protein left on the planet. Um, it's, a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. The most expensive component in doing fishing, like distant water fishing, is your labor. So there's a sort of incentive to try to cut corners on that cost. Fuel, ship, labor um, are the big costs. So if you can find a way to get cheap workers and keep them on board longer, work them harder, then that's just a little bit more for your profit. What has happened since? We know that uh, New Jersey Congressman Chris Smith recently held a hearing. You testified as part of that. It seems as though there are efforts to uh, rein in these practices and also put sanctions on them, but are they working? Not yet, they're not working yet, but there there has been a lot of movement in the last month since we published. Uh, Like you said, there was a congressional White House hearing. Um, There were EU parliament hearings. Uh, there's some litigation in the pipeline. So it's gotten a lot of attention, partially because some of the purchases are by the U.S. government, and then a lot of the purchases are in the public space with big companies. And those companies realize now that they can't look away from the problem. Uh, all of this reporting, of course, can be found online. Ian Urbina is the founder and director of the Outlaw Ocean Project. Ian, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
In our Spotlight on Business report, the list of New Jersey homes that will be powered by solar is expanding. Leaders from Woodbridge and Congressman Frank Pallone this week launched another community solar project. New Jersey-based renewable energy company Solar Landscape will give eligible households access to the renewable energy source. The company estimates it will save homeowners in the area about $160 million a year on their utility bills. The new program makes the state home to the largest number of community solar projects for low- and moderate-income families in the country. Pallone says the project was made possible by a solar investment tax credit available through the Inflation Reduction Act, and it'll create jobs by working with the Edison Job Corps to grow training and education programs in the industry. Turning to Wall Street, stocks rose today following the Federal Reserve's indication that it's done raising interest rates for now. Here's where the markets closed. Support for the business report provided by the New Jersey Tourism Industry Association. NJTIA will host their New Jersey Conference on Tourism November 30th through December 1st at Resorts Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City. NJTIA.org for event information. And be sure to tune in this weekend to NJ BizBeat with Raven Santana. She looks at New Jersey's role in the global economy, exploring the new partnerships created from the governor's East Asian economic trip and how our state universities work with international schools on medical and technological research. Watch it on the NJ Spotlight News YouTube channel Saturday at 10 a.m. One year after tenants at Stanley Holmes Village filed a lawsuit against the Atlantic City Housing Authority, many say the unsafe living conditions persist, from no heat or hot water to reports of gas leaks and pest infestations. Renters were back in court recently, urging a judge to take more forceful action against the city in order to protect residents' health and well-being as we head into what's expected to be bitterly cold winter months. Ted Goldberg has the latest. A mile away from some of AC's casinos, residents in Stanley Homes Village say they play a game of chance every time they turn on their heat or hot water. No, it's not 50, 50, it's 30. <laughs> Devon Brown has lived here for almost 30 years. The first year we had maybe 10 maintenance men. We had maybe five. Some of them need to go back to school. She says it takes months to get basic repairs done, like fixing a leaky sink. Stanley Homes was built around 85 years ago, and New Jersey's oldest public housing complex might be showing its age. The heating and hot water worked when I stopped by, but Brown says that's not always the case, and she frequently smells gas around the complex. Come to find out that pipe that they connect the gas to, they didn't connect it right. It had a hole in it also. All those pipes right there need to be redone. I try not to stress. This took a lot on me. David Johnson has lived here for about 15 years. Aside from that pesky screen door, he enjoys his apartment. Through it all, though, I love where I live. I really do. I got a nice relationship with a lot of neighbors. But he admits that the hot water and heat aren't always there when he needs them. We have days where we don't have sometimes heat, sometimes both heat and hot water. You know, that happens from time to time. The conditions could be better, um, and, and I think they will get better. Not everyone is so optimistic. We're anticipating a really, really difficult winter. 
Last year, around 100 residents signed on to a lawsuit against the AC Housing Authority, asking them to come up with a plan to make sure residents have heat and hot water. Olga Pomar is lead counsel for the residents. Temperatures were dropping into below freezing, and the units at Stanley Homes Village didn't have heat and hot water. The year-long case has produced some results. A judge has demanded that aging gas lines be replaced by the end of February, and also that the AC Housing Authority show the first steps in a new heating system in place by next winter. They had talked about installing a new replacement decentralized heating system because they knew that the current system was so unreliable, and they really didn't move forward on it. It wasn't until September when we brought a motion to enforce our prior orders that we kind of discovered that the Housing Authority really hadn't done much of anything to prepare for this year's heating season. The judge is also considering how much rent credit should be given to residents who aren't getting heat or hot water consistently. Over time, residents have become frustrated with the Housing Authority, which did not make anyone available for comment on this story. In our view, the Housing Authority never provided us with any kind of uh, reasonable, intelligent plan. They suck because the board members, you know what they do? They go for the lower bidders. They're all local people, but we have to have accountability, and the Housing Authority Board has to require more accountability. Residents have received rental credits in the past for similar issues with heat and hot water. City Councilman Kaleem Shabazz hopes residents continue getting credits until problems are fixed. Consistent heat and hot water is not a luxury, it is a necessity. A necessity that residents have had to fight for over the past 13 months. In Atlantic City, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. And that's going to do it for us tonight. But make sure you catch Reporters Roundtable with David Cruz tomorrow. David kicks off the show with Micah Rasmussen, director of the Rebovich Institute for New Jersey Politics at Ryder University, with a look at whether Orsted's stunning decision to scrap its offshore wind projects in the state could hurt Democrats at the polls next week. Then a panel of local reporters break down this week's political headlines. Watch Roundtable tomorrow at noon on the NJ Spotlight News YouTube channel. Also, a reminder to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you here tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association, and by the PSEG Foundation. Orsted will provide renewable offshore wind energy, jobs, educational, supply chain, and economic opportunities for the Garden State. Orsted, committed to the creation of a new, long-term, sustainable, clean energy future for New Jersey. Online at us.orsted.com.